Okay, so let's push on through to the last four questions in the rheumatology section of internal medicine essentials. Before I do that, let me just encourage you, if you have uh, access to iTunes, if you could go in there and give some star ratings to these podcasts or post your comments in terms of feedback you have about what you'd like to see improved other than my Bell's palsy, which we all know would be nice if that improves soon. Um, Three weeks is pushing it, frankly. Uh, So we're going to go on to item number 35. And um, this is a 58-year-old woman who's evaluated for a three-month history of a non-productive cough and hoarseness and a three-week history of worsening shortness of breath. She is otherwise well and takes no medications. On physical examination, temperature is 37.7 degrees centigrade. Blood pressure is 160 over 105 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 100 per minute and respiratory rate is 18 per minute. Oral mucous membranes are normal. There is scattered lymphadenopathy and mild tenderness to palpation over the anterior aspect of the neck. Diffuse crackles are auscultated. The remainder of the examination is unremarkable. Laboratory studies are significant for a hematocrit of 32% and serum creatinine level of 1.6 milligrams per deciliter. A urinalysis shows 2 plus protein, 10 to 15 erythrocytes per high power field, and 0 to 5 leukocytes per high power field with some erythrocyte casts seen. A chest radiograph reveals right, upper, and lower lobe pulmonary infiltrates with several cavitary lesions. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, B, sarcoidosis, C, Sjogren's syndrome, or D, tuberculosis. Again, those choices are A, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, B, sarcoidosis, C, Sjogren's syndrome, or D, tuberculosis. So um, the answer to this particular question is A, granulomatosis with polyangiitis. Uh, this patient has granulomatosis with polyangiitis, which was formerly known as Wegener's granulomatosis, uh, which is a systemic vasculitis that predominantly affects the upper and lower respiratory tract and kidneys. More than 70% of patients have upper airway manifestations, and the big one you're going to see on these types of test questions, just to prep you, is sinusitis. So if you hear this presentation in somebody who has a history of recurrent sinusitis or recently worsening sinusitis, probably the first uh, disease you should think of is granulomatosis with polyangiitis with all these other things, not just in somebody who has garden variety sinusitis with nothing else. Orbital, nasal, inner ear, and laryngotracheal inflammation may also occur Think of some of those images you've seen in the past, perhaps during preclinical lectures of patients with saddle nose deformities, for example. Pulmonary manifestations include cough, hemoptysis, and pleurisy. And characteristic radiographic findings include multifocal pulmonary infiltrates or nodules, some of which may cavitate, which was the case in this particular patient. So regarding the kidneys, the thing that you're most frequently going to see is a posse immune glomerulonephritis, which occurs in actually up to 80% of patients with granulomatosis with polyangiitis. And although glomerulonephritis may be uh, the main presenting manifestation, it's most often preceded by the respiratory tract, things both upper and lower, the sinusitis, the cavitary pulmonary lesions, and so forth. 
So um, that's the answer to the question. Sarcoidosis uh, would be incorrect. Sarcoidosis can cause inflammatory lesions of the orbits and trachea, as well as a nodule, nodular pulmonary infiltrates with necrotizing sarcoid granulomatosis um, and an interstitial nephritis, because remember, sarcoidosis is an infiltrative disease, but it's not associated with significant glomerular disease. So in this case, sarcoidosis would be the wrong answer. So patients with Sjogren's syndrome can have salivary gland enlargement and pulmonary infiltrates, but they would not have, as in this case, tracheal inflammation and nodular cavitary lung lesions. Also, uh, if the patient had sinusitis, that would not um, be explained by Sjogren's syndrome. And then uh, Sjogren's syndrome can also cause an interstitial nephritis, but it's not associated with significant glomerular disease. As far as tuberculosis goes, and it seems like tuberculosis is often on the differential diagnosis, that, of course, can cause cavitary pulmonary lesions. So if you only focused on that part of the question, you would have answered wrongly. Uh, but it would not account for glomerular nephropathy, as in this patient. TB can cause genourinary disease, but it doesn't cause this type of picture with a glomerular nephritis. So key point in this question, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, which was formerly known as Wegener's, is a systemic necrotizing vasculitis that predominantly affects the upper and low, lower respiratory tract as well as the kidneys. And remember, kidneys in 80% of these patients. So you'd want to look there if they didn't give you that piece of information. Item number 36. A 62-year-old man is evaluated for a two-week history of purpuric lesions on the lower extremities. He is otherwise well and takes no medications. On physical examination, temperature is 37.2 degrees centigrade, blood pressure is 160 over 100, and pulse rate is 88, with a respiratory rate of 12 per minute. The mucous membranes are normal. Tender, non-blanching purpura are present on the feet and distal lower extremities. There is a 1-plus bilateral tibial and pedal edema, but no joint swelling is noted. Laboratories reveal a hematocrit of 28%, leukocyte count of 9,500 per microliter with a normal differential. Creatinine is 1.9 milligrams per deciliter. And urinalysis shows 2 plus protein, 15 to 20 erythrocytes per high power field, and 0 to 5 leukocytes per high power field. A skin biopsy shows a leukocytoclastic vasculitis with deposits of IgA. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Churg-Strauss syndrome. B. Henoch-Schonlein purpura. C. Microscopic polyangiitis. Or D. Polyarteritis nodosa. Again, those choices are A. Churg-Strauss. B. Henoch-Schonlein purpura. C. Microscopic polyangiitis. Or D. Polyarteritis nodosa. So for this one, I think you almost could have used your test-taking strategy if you knew nothing about any of these four diseases. Uh, Henoch-Schonlein purpura is the correct answer. The patient does have purpura, although the purpura can occur in other diseases. So you would have been lucky if you answered it just based on the fact that the patient has purpura. So Henoch-Schonlein purpura most commonly occurs in kids, um, and it tends to be a, wor a, a worse disease when it does occur in adults with greater severity. The characteristic features are a purpuric rash, which is predominantly on the distal lower extremities. They can have arthritis, abdominal pain, as well as hematuria. 
So skin biopsy is the, the big key in making this diagnosis uh, as it was in this test question. So the, what you would see is leukocytoclastic vasculitis, so inflammation of the blood vessels with deposits of IgA. There's not too much else that gives you that in the skin in a setting like this where the patient has purpura. So you would be thinking hinoxonine purpura, which is not, by the way, a very common uh, disease in adults. Kidney biopsies, if you got a kidney biopsy in this patient, um, are sometimes performed if there's persistent hematuria and proteinuria. And on that situation, you would see IgA deposition in the kidneys, which uh, can also be seen in IgA nephropathy. So you're going to, you know, making a diagnosis of HSP or hinoxonine purpura depends on the other clinical characteristics as well. Uh, kidney disease may be aggressive in some of these patients with HSP with transition to diffuse proliferative glomerulonephritis. And um, the kind of the, I guess, caveat in a question like this is that in men over the age of 50 years, HSP has been reported to occur in association with solid tumors or the myelodysplastic syndrome. So if they were going to test you on that particular facet of um, you knowledge, um, they would probably give you a clue that the patient had some other uh, hematologic uh, disorder such as myelodysplastic syndrome or a solid tumor. So why is Churg-Strauss the wrong answer in this question? Um, because first of all, you're not getting a history that the patient uh, has had asthma in the past, which is frequent in patients with Churg-Strauss syndrome. And Churg-Strauss is commonly associated uh, with peripheral eosinophilia. We didn't get that history. And the presence of a perinuclear antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody, also known as PNCA. So microscopic polyangiitis is the wrong answer. Um, that typically involves small arterioles and may be associated with glomerulonephritis and purpuric skin lesions. But immune deposits in the skin do not go, such as staining for IgA, do not go with this disorder. Uh, and most po patients with microscopic polyangitis also have a positive pericytoplasmic uh, antinuclear cytoplasmic antibody, or PNCA. And then polyarteritis nodosa is a small to medium vessel vasculitis that may be associated with renal artery involvement and hypertension. Uh, purpura with skin biopsy findings of immune deposits is also not is not characteristic of polyarteritis nodosa. So key point in this question, onset of henoxonine purpura may occur in adults and can be associated with solid tumors or the myelodysplastic syndrome. And the classic sort of findings are IgA deposits in the skin biopsy. And remember, uh, purpura on the lower extremities is your... Uh, neurocalisthenics for the day. Item number 37, a 47-year-old man is evaluated for a three-week history of paresthesia of the left leg and a six-month history, history of a non-productive cough. He also has allergic rhinitis and a history of asthma. Medications are bluticasone and inhaled albuterol as needed. On physical examination, temperatures are 37.1 degrees centigrade, blood pressure is 150 over 100, pulse rate is 100 per minute, and respiratory rate is 18 per minute. There is no rash, and ocular, nasal, and oral mucous membranes are normal. Examination of the lungs reveals scattered expiratory ronchi. There is weakness of eversion of the left foot. Leukocyte count 
is 12,500 per microliter with 44% neutrophils, 32% eosinophils, 15% lymphocytes, and 9% monocytes. Creatinine is 1.8 milligrams per deciliter. The perinuclear anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibody, or PNCA, is positive. Urinalysis reveals 1 plus protein, 5 to 10 erythrocytes per high power field, 0 to 5 leukocytes per high power field. A chest radiograph reveals scattered bilateral nodular pulmonary infiltrates. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Churg-Strauss syndrome, B. Granulomatosis with polyangiitis, C. Microscopic polyangiitis, or D. Polyarteritis nodosa. Again, those answers are A. Churg-Strauss syndrome, B. Granulomatosis with polyangiitis, formerly known as Wegener's, C. Microscopic polyangiitis, or D. Polyarteritis nodosa. So contemplate that. Put in your vote. The answer here is A. Churg-Strauss syndrome. So if you were listening to the last couple questions, you're right on this one, and you've picked up on all the clues, including the Pianca, the history of uh, sinusitis and uh, rhinitis and so forth, and you came up with the correct diagnosis. So this patient most likely has Churg-Strauss syndrome, a form of systemic vasculitis that most often occurs in the setting of antecedent asthma, allergic rhinitis, or sinusitis. Patients typically have eosinophilia, which this patient has, migratory pulmonary infiltrates, which this patient has, purpuric skin rash, and mononeuritis multiplex, which is that he's picked off a single nerve uh, that you picked up on your physical exam. Fever, arthralgia, and myalgia are also common presenting features. Up to 40% of patients have perinuclear antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody, or PNCA positivity, with specificity for antimyeloperoxidase antibodies. So patients with PNCA positivity are more likely to have glomerulonephritis, alveolar hemorrhage, rhinoneuritis multiplex, as well as purpura. So keep in mind, that's kind of a key point is, well, they say up to 40% are PNCA positive. That means 60% are not PNCA positive. So you gotta keep that in mind as you're seeing patients in the real world. Um, so the answer here is Churg-Strauss. Uh, the wrong answer would be granulomatosis with polyangiitis, uh, it, which is a necrotizing glasciitis that typically affects the respiratory tract and kidneys. Radiographs show pulmonary infiltrates or nodules that are often cavitary as well as pulmonary hemorrhage. So if you're sort of scratching your head wondering how you differentiate that from Churg-Strauss, in this particular question, and on most questions you're going to get around these diseases, um, Churg-Strauss, you have eosinophilia, you have uh, some history of either asthma, rhinitis, or both. Um, and uh, so hopefully you wouldn't go for this uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis. As far as microscopic polyangiitis goes, again, it's a necrotizing glasculitis that typically, and remember, it affects these small arterioles. It affects the kidneys and lungs, uh, and they tend to present with rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, um, and about 50% have pulmonary involvement that usually manifests as pulmonary hemorrhage. So if you hear about a vasculitis associated with pulmonary hemorrhage, it's not always, but Frequently, you should think of microscopic polyangiitis. Fever, arthralgia, purpura, and mononeuritis multiplex can also occur with that disease, by the way. Again, it would not give you 
uh, findings of profound eosinophilia up to 32% as in this case, as well as this history of antecedent allergic rhinitis uh, and reactive airways disease. Finally, patients with polyarteritis nodosa typically present with fever, abdominal pain, arthralgia, and weight loss that develops over days to months. Two-thirds of these patients have monoritis multiplex, and one-third have hypertension and cutaneous involvement, including nodules, ulcers, purpura. And here's the kicker. This is sort of your neurocalisthenics for the day, levito reticularis. Um, and male patients, about a third, to time, third of the time, will have pain in the testicle. Um, so um, that would be a classic finding in polyarteritis nodosa. So remember, levito reticularis is like that fishnet stocking appearance. It can occur in a number of different processes, including sepsis, but in this case, it would be consistent with polyarteritis nodosa if that's what this patient have, which had, which they don't. Uh, and then lung involvement is uncommon with polyarteritis nodosa, and ANCA tests results typically are negative for polyarteritis nodosa. And final question of this question set in rheumatology. A 70, this is item number 38. 75-year-old woman is evaluated for a sudden loss of vision in the left eye that began 30 minutes ago. She has a two-week history of fatigue, malaise, and pain in the shoulders, neck, hips, and lower back. She also has a five-day history of bi mild bitemporal headache. On physical examination, temperature is 37.3 degrees centigrade, blood pressure 140 over 85, pulse rate is 72 per minute, and respiratory rate is 16 per minute. Body mass index is 31. The left temporal artery is tender. Fundoscopic examination reveals a pale, swollen optic disc. Range of motion of the shoulders and hips elicits moderate pain. The remainder of the examination is unremarkable. Laboratory studies are significant for a hemoglobin of 9.9 grams per deciliter, leukocyte count of 7,300 per microliter, platelet count of 456,000 per microliter, and erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 116 millimeters per hour. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in this patient's management? A, brain MRI. B, high-dose intravenous methylprednisolone, C, low-dose oral prednisone, or D, temporal artery biopsy. Again, choices are A, brain MRI, B, high-dose intravenous methylprednisolone, C, low-dose oral prednisone, or D, temporal artery biopsy. And hopefully, based on our previous questions, that's i.e. the last uh, session or two that we were on these podcasts, you got this question correct. And the answer here would be choice B, which is high-dose intravenous methylprednisolone. Um, the patient's headache, temporal artery tenderness, fever, and mild anemia are strongly suggestive of giant cell arteritis. And the pain in her shoulder and hip girdle accompanied by this are indicative, or I should say accompanied by her high erythrocyte sedimentation rate is consistent with polymyalgia rheumatica. Uh, polymyalgia rheumatica, you remember, is present in approximately one-third of patients with giant cell arteritis, which I think a good teaching point here is that two-thirds of patients with giant cell arteritis won't have polymyalgia rheumatica. So be careful not to get tricked by patients, as I've seen in numerous times, patients who present with just giant cell arteritis without poly, a history of polymyalgia rheumatica or recent polymyalgia rheumatica. 
Patients with giant cell arteritis are usually treated with high-dose glucocorticoids, such as one milligram per kilogram per day of prednisolone, or sorry, of methylprednisolone. And some patients would actually strike that. <laughs> that should be one milligram per kilogram per day of prednisone. But you're initially going to give them a high-dose methylprednisolone intravenously. In some patients with giant cell arteritis, um, anterior ischemic optic neuropathy may cause acute and complete visual loss, and you may see, as in this case, in this question, a pale swollen optic nerve, and rarely patients with GCA regain vision if treated immediately with high-dose intravenous glucocorticoids, such as methylprednisolone. Um, so, in other words, this woman is unlikely to regain vision if she already has impaired vision, but the most important thing here is that you're trying to prevent uh, her other eye from losing vision, or both eyes. So, um, although temporal artery biopsy is the gold standard for diagnosis, diagnosing giant cell arteritis, diagnostic testing should not precede treatment in patients whose clinical presentation is sus suspicious for this condition. And the important thing to know is you have up to four weeks to actually do the temporal artery biopsy where you'll still have a pretty substantial diagnostic yield in terms of making a diagnosis. And there have been cases reported up to six weeks after treatment was begun with steroids where they've actually seen evidence of temporal artery arteritis on the uh, biopsy. Low-dose oral prednisone would not be the appropriate therapy for this. Uh, it would be the appropriate therapy for uh, isolated polymyalgia rheumatica, where you'll get a dramatic response to steroid treatment. But in this situation, you want to give high-dose uh, steroids, namely intravenous methylprednisolone, and then you're going to transfer them over to oral prednisone for a prolonged period as well. Um, regarding MRI, this would not be the correct choice. Um, you're not going to see much on brain MRI in situations where there is giant cell arteritis. So um, temporal artery biopsy should be performed, but in this situation where there's uh, threatened vision, you're going to give high-dose intravenous methylprednisolone and um, uh, then switch them over to oral prednisone, and you're going to do a temporal artery biopsy. So a key point in this question is that in patients whose clinical presentation is suspicious for giant cell arteritis, glucocorticoid therapy should be instituted immediately before diagnostic testing is performed, and you're really trying to save the vision in this situation. Uh, thank you, and I'll be back again with the next section uh, in this book. If you have any strong feelings about which section you'd like me to do next, you can get in touch with me through iTunes or SoundCloud. Uh, your choices are cardiovascular, endocrinology, gastroenterology, general internal medicine, hematology, infectious diseases, nephrology, neurology, oncology, or pulmonary. We have many great sections to go through uh, as we go forward in this book. Thanks, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to these podcasts.